Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Well, good evening, everybody. And again, welcome to Redemption Hill. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And it really is good to worship with you tonight. Um, let's pray together, and we're going to jump right into our passage for the evening. And Father, as we come to you now, we ask that you, you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to have eyes to see Jesus more clearly and more beautifully tonight. Um, as, we get into this, as we continue to walk through John's gospel, that your, your spirit would move within us and through us. Lord, we pray that as as we as a church lift Jesus up, that, that he would draw all people to himself. And so we lift this time in our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, tonight we are in the Gospel of John. We've been in a series in John. We'll be in chapter 13 tonight, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up there with me. That um, will also be on the screen for you, or you can pull it up on whatever device you have. And, and so it, the, if you're new tonight, this is a great time to jump in. John's Gospel introduces us to who Jesus is, and we, as we go through this every week, we're seeing different aspects of who Jesus is, and tonight we see a beautiful passage that will be familiar to many of you, maybe and for some of you, I'm sure it will be new. Um, but we, as we come to the text tonight, in chapter 13, there's a major turning point in this gospel that, that begins at this chapter. Now, up until this point, there's been a lot of narrative and a lot of, of getting to Jerusalem for Jesus. In tonight's passage, we come to the Thursday night of Passion Week, um, of the Passion of Christ, where he was, this is what many people call the Last Supper. And so John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And in that, he shows us that, that leadership is, that he shows, is upside down from the leadership that's, that we see around us and what we think of when we think of a leader. And so I don't know what characteristics come to mind for you. If I were to say, like, what do you think of when you think of somebody that is gifted to be a leader or a skilled leader? Um, it, it could be a number of things, but, but sometimes you can just feel it when you walk into a room that somebody has a commanding presence and, or, or just has a tendency for people to follow them. But... But Christ here shows us that he is both Lord and servant, which is, again, upside down for many of our categories. But there's also a reality that no one in human history has had a larger impact than Jesus Christ, objectively. No one has changed human history like he has. And so today we come to a passage that shows that Jesus turns our categories upside down as he calls us to himself, that Jesus is our Lord and servant. So this is what we read in chapter 13. It says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you, don't under, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my, my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm, speaking, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as we read this passage, there's a lot here. I mean, we, last week we had a much shorter text. Next week is going to be a shorter passage. We, we vary the length of passage that we studied together, sometimes because it, the, it, the story and the narrative breaks itself down that way. And it's also, I think, important for us as a church to see that there's different paces that we can read Scripture at, that at times we can read a verse or two and really dig in deeply to those, and at times it's better to step back and be able to see a narrative flow in one whole section together. And so tonight we have a longer section. And, and as we look at this and trying to understand how to break down what we're going to get out of this, we need to remember that John's Gospel was written for what purpose? It was so that we might be introduced to who Jesus is, he starts from the beginning by showing Jesus is God incarnate and that he wrote his whole gospel, as we've seen all the way through, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so as we look at the passage tonight with that in mind, we're going to see first characteristics of Jesus that emerge in this passage. What do we learn about who Jesus is? And then we see three responses to Jesus in this passage that we'll break down as well. And so as I read it, 
what I'd like you to be able to, to think about and reflect on as we walk through this together, how is your heart responding as we, as we take this look at Jesus? And at the end, we're going to have a little bit of self-diagnostics that we do on our own hearts. So tonight we have nine characteristics of Jesus that emerge in the text. Um, yes, that is a lot. Yes, I promise we will get through it in about the normal amount of time. So, um, so the first characteristic we see, so Jesus is Lord and servant. That's the big idea that we have here. We see him say like, hey, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's correct that you do that. That is right that you do that. But then he also serves people and shows what it looks like to serve. And so Jesus is Lord and servant. So the first characteristic is that he loves his own to the end. Right away in verse one, and, and in some ways, if we were gonna slow this down, verse one can stand on its own. This is powerful and profound that right as it begins, it tells us the setting. It was Passover had come. The hour had come for him to depart to his father. And look what it says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What an incredible statement about who Jesus is. It might be the most profound statement in the passage. In part because we don't really do this, do we? We have limits to our love for most people. When people. If people betray us, like Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, we don't really continue loving those people often. When people fail our expectations, we bail out. We have a tendency to, to attack and justify our responses, and we self-protect, but not Jesus. He loved, and he loved his own to the end. Now, I'm convinced that this verse is a transition in John's gospel, that this is kind of an, an introduction, a subtitle to everything that's going to follow, that it begins here with Jesus washing his disciples' feet, but I don't think it's limited to that. I think John is showing this trajectory Jesus is on through his own death by crucifixion shows his love for his own to the end, and that that is the ultimate sign of his love. And so... And, and as we think about that, like it's, it, so Jesus loved his own to, to the end. John here gives himself a designation that it's the first time in this gospel that he uses it, but he'll use it again. You notice that you might not have caught that it was him, that it says that when, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, that Simon Peter motioned across the table to one of the disciples who was next to Jesus, and he leaned into him. Well, that was, it, John calls it the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's almost certain, it really is, that is John's description of himself. And so John's understanding of himself is related to and founded in Jesus' love for him. And we need to understand, too, how people ate at this time. The Last Supper did not look like Da Vinci's The Last Supper, okay? First of all, they weren't at chairs, on chairs at a table like that. That wasn't how people ate in the ancient Near East. And second, they didn't all sit on one side of the table because that is super awkward. <laughs> like, we don't, nobody ever thinks about that, I don't think. You look at it and you go, oh, there's the Last Supper. And we don't go, why? What about, they can't even like talk to each other. But they would recline at a table. The tables were low to the ground. There would be pillows. It was a comfortable setting. And the food would be in the center. But people would lean on their left elbows and eat with their right hands and sit and talk around a table. And so Simon Peter must have been across the table or down a few people at least from where Jesus was. But John was next to Jesus. And so John leaned into him. It would have been John leaning his head back into Jesus' chest resting there and asking him, who is it? And Jesus being able to speak into John's ear, it's who I'm going to give this bread, this morsel that I've dipped. 
Now, this title that John uses for himself, the the one whom Jesus loved, I think we can take a couple of ways, because John, I do think there's points where he throws a little bit of shade in his gospel toward others, like, since he introduced Judas, he's been doing that, right? The first time Judas gets mentioned, he's like, he's going to betray Jesus, like, spoiler from John in chapter 6. And, and the, like when we get to the resurrection, I, it's still hilarious to me that, that John talks about Simon Peter and a younger disciple ran to the tomb and the younger one got there first. And so John's throwing shade at Simon Peter saying, old man, I beat you to the tomb. But here, I, th- I think we can hear that and think, like, is John setting himself apart as particularly loved, especially loved by Jesus? Is this a prideful thing? And I don't think so. I think for John, the love of Christ was so profound and earth-shattering for him. He was so awestruck by the love Jesus had for him, feeling totally undeserving, that he had come to have his primary identity in his life as being one who Jesus loved and loved to the end. So Jesus loved his, loves his own to the end. Now, tonight, as we walk through the next eight characteristics, it all comes back to this, and I'm going to ask you, church, to help me. I know at 5 p.m. we're usually a little quieter and more reserved, and so I'm going to need you to use your voices tonight and join me, in, because I'm going to ask you over and over and over again, what do we know about Jesus? And it's on the screen in front of you, but I would like you to respond and help me through this. So if I say, what do we know about Jesus, you would say... Right, you got it. I'm going to do it one more time so you're ready for it, because I don't want to sneak up on you. What do we know about Jesus? Okay, great. Second characteristic is Jesus knows. He knows what it was and is and will be. Like This is amazing to me. It says, during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So this was already something that Satan was working on Judas. Judas had come to that place. I mean, this wasn't like it just happened in a moment. It was on his mind. He was frustrated by some of what was going on. We saw that with the ointment that Mary used and anointed Jesus with, that, that Judas was frustrated by that. But then it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper. Now, Jesus is the host of this feast, and so he's the one who's hosting it and and would be looked at as everyone else, the disciples there, are his guests to be able to enjoy it. And so he gets up from the, the table, but this is the motivation then. He loved his own to the end, and it's saying he knew everything that was going on. That he knew that God had given in all things. He knew that he had come from God, which John starts with, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus knows all things past, present, and future because he knew where he was going after this. Jesus knew exactly what was going on with Judas. He knew his heart. He knew that he had been sent by the Father. He knew where he was going. And that, I think, makes the foot washing all that much more remarkable to me. Like, we don't know very much. We are very limited in in our knowledge. We don't think that. Most of us, functionally, internally, believe that we know a lot more than we do. But we have versions of memories of what has happened in our lives. None of it is totally objective. It's all colored by our emotions, our experiences, that as we mull on things, they can shape and turn. You know this because you've seen it in other people, haven't you? 
Where when people recount things that have happened, maybe conflict or problems between people in relationships, somehow the stories get, get, seem to sh- get shaped over time and it's hard to come back together and even agree on what has happened when things get tough. And then we have those past memories color our present realities. We don't, every one of us comes in with, into every interaction and every conversation we have, every relationship in our lives with a past and experience and interpretive grids and trauma and uh, good experiences like it, that shapes the way that we interact and receive other people. And none of us knows the future, but we make assumptions about, about what will be. And we are capable of making a thousand assumptions in a moment, but we're not always right. Think about this. The closer a relationship you have, the more likely this is to happen. So if you think about a relationship with a parent or with a child, with a sibling or with a spouse, there are moments when, you can get, when an argument happens, there's a disagreement, and in an instant, it has all of the baggage and background of an entire lifetime of interaction that gets fed into that moment, and you are able to look at someone's face and decide that you know where this argument's gonna go, and you can even tell them, I think this is what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're gonna say next. Have you ever had that experience? It isn't a good idea to tell the person what you assume they're gonna say next. (laughs) Um, Because either you could be totally wrong and then you'll just be told how wrong you are and how dare you make those assumptions, or if you get it right, that might be worse. And so, but we make all these assumptions and none of that is knowing all things. We don't know what's happening in people's hearts. We don't know what, obje- we, don't, we can't trust the complete objectivity of our memories and we certainly don't know what's going to come in the future. But Jesus knew all of these things. And still, what do we know about Jesus? He loves One of you. <laughs> all right, what do we know about Jesus, church? Good, I'm going to need you. We're going to keep going. Characteristic three, Jesus has cleansed us and will clean us. I love this when he comes to Peter, which he had, he had begun to pour, he poured water in a basin, took off his outer clothing so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't get his, his you know, regular clothing wet, and stripped down and put a towel around him and he was filled base with water and was washing the disciples' feet. Now again, culturally, this is something that is hard for us to understand the reality of it because this does not happen. Like, if, if you walk into someone's house and they say, can you sit down so I can wash your feet? You're like, no, I would. No, thank you. Um, and, and, like, I mean, you might live in a house where people have to take their shoes off, but that's not, that's not quite the same. But there's a, a corollary to that. Because in this time, especially in a place like Jerusalem, where they were at this point, in a city, they did not have the kind of facilities and indoor plumbing that we assume for the places we live. The streets were not, if we think streets here are dirty, and they're, they're really not, as for a city, D.C. is incredibly clean. But um, if we think that things are dirty on these streets, it's nothing to compare to first century Jerusalem. And so wearing sandals coming in, people's feet would need to be washed. And it was very customary for that to happen when you showed up for a meal at someone, or an event at someone's house, that you would take off your sandals and have your feet washed as you came in. So you wouldn't drag everything that you'd stepped in into the house. You can let your imagination run. But this was the task of the lowest of all servants. It wasn't even a task that, that servants were all asked to do. And so for Jesus to take on this task with the disciples 
and to wash their feet, it was, was him stepping into a, the lowest place imaginable. And that's why Peter reacts. He's like, no way. I'm not going to let you do this. And Jesus' response to him, though, is, is listen, you have to do this or you'll, you have no share with me. And so Peter, in typical Peter fashion, goes, okay, then all of me. <laughs> Jesus is like, no. <laughs> Settle down. You don't need a bath right now. He says, Peter, you're clean. The one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. And so Jesus, as he so often does, has layers of meaning to what he's saying. It's likely at this point that Peter had had a bath that day and had cleansed himself. And so Jesus was saying, you're clean, man. I'm just going to wash your feet. But it's also clear here that Jesus is talking about a deeper level of cleanliness of, that we call, the theological term for that is sanctification. That, that God cleanses us, that the, the work of Christ, his, his sacrifice has cleansed us. And, that, and so that is when he's washing the disciples' feet, there is a washing that's happening, but there's a deeper reality to it. And so with that, there's what Jesus gets to here is one of the, was, it was a really complex theological reality that, that people talk about as positional versus progressive sanctification. All that means is that we, are, that we are simultaneously, positionally sanctified. We are cleansed by Christ, not by anything we do, but by his death in our place for our sin. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ, and so we, are, we stand before God holy and we all know that we are not yet perfect, we, that we still mess up, that we still have to be cleansed even as we go along the way. And so Jesus is hinting at that, it's getting at that underneath the layers of what he's saying, and he's saying, you know, there are points along the way, Peter, where you still have stuff that needs to get cleaned up. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that, there's, that you come to Christ, but as you walk with Jesus through your life, do you become more acutely aware of your own brokenness and sinfulness along the way if you're walking faithfully with Jesus? That, that it will get more nuanced and more, more complex and that along the way that there's, there's more that shows up that will need to be cleaned by Jesus. And it's not always comfortable to go through the process of sanctification. Usually it, it, it often can be painful. Um, I recently got my first pedicure of my life. I'm admitting it to you, and also it was kind of nice. <laughs> and my wife took me because she was like, this, this something needs to happen here, um, because I'm now a 42-year-old dad with teenage kids, and there's a stereotype about what my feet are going to look like, and it might be closer to true than I want it to be. So we go in, and it was amazing the amount of material they take off your feet, at least my feet, at this pedicure. And it got uncomfortable. Boys, I was like, are you, like, are, are, you, are you sanding my whole foot off with that grater? Like, what is happening here? But along the way, there was this whole process of cleansing that wasn't always comfortable, but in the end, it did actually bring some, something good to my life. Much deeper level. There's times where it's uncomfortable when Jesus works with us and when we get exposed. But it's in, in the end, what he's doing is bringing us closer to him. He has cleansed us. If you turn to him, you are positionally holy. And you will need to continue to turn to him. In 1 John, a letter that John wrote later on, he said it this way. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what John is saying is like, this is the reality. If you say that you have no sin, then, then you're not being realistic. You're lying about who you are, and, and you can confess your sin, and God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you, but if you do sin, then we have an advocate in Jesus. So John's acknowledging like, yes, you are holy, but there's going to be times when you still mess up and you still need the, the cleansing truth of Jesus to come in. And so Jesus is our advocate, the one who cleanses us by his spirit, and we can trust him to wash sin away, even if it digs deeper than we expected. Jesus will love you to the end, because what do we know about Jesus? All right, number four. Jesus serves and shows us how to serve. This is where the passage can get a little difficult. It's it's difficult to interpret and apply. So as we read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and hear that he's saying, this is something you ought to do for each other. Like, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right, but I've given you an example that you should also, um, that you should do just as I have done to you. And so there's a couple of ways we can take this. Some Christians take this and make foot washing a third sacrament that is practiced by the church. Um, I don't think that it's actually a third sacrament, though it can be powerful in the right moment to be able to experience together as Christians. Others, though, turn this into moralistic teaching to say, okay, we've got to follow Jesus' example, and so how are all the ways we follow his example? And so it would be very easy to preach this passage that way and and say, all right, the characteristics we see in Jesus, if he really is the greatest leader that ever existed, and no one has changed the world more than him, then if we want to lead like Jesus, here are the nine ways we can develop humility and servant leadership. That's fine. It might be practical for your life. But that's not a sermon because it's not the gospel. It's moralistic teaching, only looking to Jesus as example. And so we have to, it's both and. Neither, neither one, it, it can't be exclusive from it. But as um, the Gospel Transformation Study Bible says, Jesus is our substitute before he is our example. The imperative to wash one another's feet flows out of the indicative of Jesus washing us by his grace. So what that means is this is what we see all through the New Testament especially is there is an indicative indicating who you are if you follow Jesus, what has happened in you and what position we have. And then from that, there are ways that we are called to live. And in that, Jesus shows what real love looks like and what real leadership looks like in that he takes the lowest place self-sacrificially for the good and the flourishing of other people. That's what love is. That isn't the way we think about love. Usually when we talk about loving someone or loving something, I mean, we throw it around all over the place, right? Like, I love buffalo wings. It's true. I love my daughter, Leanne. That should be different than the way I'm using the word love. And we, and we also, so we use it in a broad range of ways, and so did people in the, in the ancient areas. Like this, in this context, it, it's still the case. 
But often when we think about love, I, I'm convinced, I know in my own heart, that often what we're thinking about is more about self-fulfillment than it is self-sacrifice. So this shows up in our approach to relationships, that often we look at relationships and when we say that we love someone, what we're actually reflecting is, I really love being around that person and I like my experience when I'm with them and I like who I am when I'm with that person. But often it's self-reflective. It's very rare if, that we do a premarital course at Redemption Hill and what we hear from somebody is, I am committing my entire life to live self-sacrificially for the flourishing of this person. Not, hopefully that's true, but it's not often where we go first. And Jesus shows us here that love is self-sacrificial. So he serves in this and shows us how to serve. And in that service, what do we know about Jesus? That he loves his own to the end. All right, fifth, he has chosen his own. This gets a little crazy. In verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you now. Like, blessed are you if you do these things, but I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture is going to be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted, has lifted his heel against me. And so Jesus says here, he chose his own. Now, I think there's layers here as well that we could talk about the reality that if you are in Christ, if you follow Jesus, then we're told in Ephesians 1 that you have been chosen before the foundations of the world by God to follow Jesus. And so, so there's truth to that. But even on the surface level here, Jesus goes on to say, I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe that I am he. So he's telling the disciples, I'm giving you a clue right now. What he said to Peter, you're not going to, this doesn't make sense to you right now, but it's going to. And so there's a way that he was strengthening the disciples' faith in this statement. And I think part of what he was saying is, I did not make a mistake in calling Judas to follow me. He's saying, there's something happening and I'm about to be betrayed, but I know what I chose. I know what's happening. Again, nothing is outside of his knowledge. He knows what was and what is and what will be. And so we need to remember this too, that God does not make mistakes. And that even the things that have happened in our lives that are evil and are intended for evil can be used by God for good in the end. That even when we experience difficult things and walk through dark valleys, that God's presence doesn't leave us that he will be with us and carry us forward into his presence because what do we know about Jesus? All right, number six, he's the Messiah. So Jesus quotes Psalm 41 here about, about betrayal. And as he does, he's the Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. There was an expectation of the ultimate son of King David who would be born, and God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that, that David's son would rule on the throne forever. And so there was all, in the, you read the prophets, and there was this messianic expectation of who would come and liberate God's people, and who it was that would become that ultimate Davidic king. And so when we use the word Messiah, that's what's indicated by it. When we, the word Christ is Greek for anointed one, which is Messiah, and so Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is saying he's the anointed one, the king. And so here he quotes a Davidic psalm to align himself with David as the greater fulfillment of what David was experiencing in the psalms, which, which happens in the New Testament with Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and various Davidic psalms that Jesus cries out or that are ascribed to him as we see him as the fulfillment of what David experienced. 
And so this psalm, whenever we see a New Testament use an Old Testament passage, it's really good to go back and get a fuller context. And this is what David cried out in Psalm 41. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. That's people saying that about David. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Jesus knew the context of this psalm when he quoted it. Yes, he was being betrayed by a close friend, but he knew what he came to do. He knew that it would mean betrayal to his death. He came as the ultimate son of David, the king, the anointed one, who would renew and restore God's people and, and give us a seat in the God's presence. That's when he says to Peter, like, hey, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. There's an implication there of this share in the inheritance of the kingdom of light in God's presence. And so that's why Peter says, then wash all of me. But this is the promise, as, because Christ is the Messiah, is that, that he offers us a share in God's presence, and he has the confidence in this moment of his betrayal that that is where things are headed. And so we see that Jesus is the Messiah and calls us into God's presence and makes the way, because what do we know about Jesus? You're doing great. We have three more characteristics to roll through quickly. Seventh, he was betrayed. He said, truly, truly, amen, amen, one of you will betray me. This is when Peter motions and John leans back and he gives Judas a morsel. None of them understood it at the time. That's what it tells us. But John includes himself in that, even though Jesus had whispered it in his ear. Now, there are some that I think as we picture the scene, that's important to realize. There are some that have called this the, um, like a sacrament of death that because he dipped the bread and gave it to Judas, it was somehow was the, that Satan went into Judas by the bread. And I don't think that's true or helpful here. Jesus was passing a morsel of food. Remember, he was the host of the feast. And in the same way that we would do the same, if we see a particularly good piece of a roast or a, a particularly good, if you're hosting a meal, you want your guests to have the best. I love cooking, and I love cooking um, for people. It's one of my love languages and it's something that I enjoy doing. And so, you know, if I take the time to prepare a meal and while I'm you know, shredding a smoked pork shoulder for tacos, I call somebody over and say, hey, come and give them a piece of it. That's a, that's a show of intimacy and honor and love extended of, I want you to have the best portion before it even gets to the table. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him that night. And I think even in this, Jesus was continuing to love Judas, to care for him, that he was reaching out to him, and that this was what finally sealed Judas' betrayal. But Jesus, what we can see in this is that Jesus was betrayed. He's not unaware of the pain of betrayal, and every one of us has experienced betrayal to different levels, and betrayal leaves scars and wounds, and it leaves tenderness that does shape our lives. And so you need to hear that Jesus will never betray you. He knows the pain of betrayal. He's not unaware of what you've experienced. But Jesus loves us, because what, we, what do we know about Jesus 
that he loves his own to the end. Jesus is hated by Satan. This is uncomfortable for most of us that Satan is explicit in this passage because maybe we don't talk about him that often. Uh, but, but here, I think that we need to, again, see that it was only after Judas received a final act of love from Christ. And it, he didn't take it as love, but it, but it was taken by Judas as an act of betrayal of him. And that was the moment, this is the moment when his heart was finally hardened and his resolve was sealed and that's when Satan took him over so that he would ensure it was carried out. See, Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates anyone who bears Jesus' image and likeness and said, you know what that means? Well, if every person that lives and breathes is made in the image and likeness of God as we're told biblically that we are, that means Satan hates you and me. He will do everything he can to get us twisted up, to receive love as an attack, pushing us to distrust Jesus and people close to us who love us well. So we need to be careful. Don't listen to Satan. He hates you, but Jesus has given himself for you because what we know about Jesus is that he loves his own to the end. And finally, he is the sacrificial one. This is a thread that runs through from 13.1 all the way through the crucifixion, that Jesus loves his own to the end. And, this is, and so I want us to see the context of this, that it is incredible to me, just quickly and briefly, that Jesus here is the one who came to give himself up. He is serving the Passover meal to his disciples. The Passover meal was a reminder to God's people and still celebrated by Jewish people today. Um, the Passover Seder. It's a reminder of what God did, saving his people from slavery in Egypt, carrying them out as on eagle's wings and bringing them safely into the wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. And that the 10th sign that came against the Egyptians was the sign of the death of the firstborn. The Jewish people, the, God, the Hebrews were told by God, if you kill a lamb and rub the lamb's blood on the, on the lintel and on the doorposts of your house, then the spirit of death will pass over your house and, your, and death will not visit that night. And so it was by the blood of a sacrificed lamb that the people were saved. Jesus came, and right at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, identified him and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in this moment, Jesus, knowing that Judas was betraying him, and he's saying to Judas, what you got to do, go and do quickly, but he was offering and serving the feast of a Passover lamb, knowing that he, that night, was going as the ultimate Passover lamb to be slain in our place so that by his blood, death might pass over us. And so he is still loving and serving people even through this moment. And they had no idea what was coming. Okay, so briefly then, these are nine characteristics of Jesus. And we're told that he loves us to the end. We also see three responses. And this is where I want us each to be able to do our own kind of self-diagnosis. That as we've walked through John together, I think we, we've tried to respond and often we kind of pause and say, okay, how are people responding to Jesus in the narrative? And, and, and because we want to try to focus our hearts that often we put ourselves as we read these stories into Jesus's shoes or sandals. And we think, oh, would I wash their feet? Probably you wouldn't have. But 
none of us is Jesus. We are much more likely somebody that's, that's being described in the story instead. So there are three major responses that we see to Jesus here. And as we walk through these, consider your own heart. Ask God to search your heart, to soften your heart by his spirit. Each one of us can be helpful to, each one of these can be helpful to us. And so think about what are your deepest needs right now? What are your deepest longings? Or where is God's spirit going to challenge you? The first way that we see a response is that Judas goes deeper into darkness. And for some of you, it's very possible that experiencing the love of God in Christ would drive you further from him rather than draw you to him. As some have said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the passage ends profoundly as John writes it, it ends by simply saying, and it was night. Darkness had fallen. It overtook Judas in spite of his proximity to Jesus. Now already, again, we've, you know, Jesus had said I, in chapter 6, he said, hey, to his disciples, I chose you, right? I didn't, didn't I choose you? But one of you is a devil. And John is like, that's Judas. <laughs> we saw with Mary in the jar of ointment that, that she did this beautiful act of anointing him for his coming death and Judas's response was to get angry that the money of the perfume was wasted that way. See, Judas was only out for Judas. He was only out for his own personal gain. He was interested in income and image and influence. And too often, those are the motives, the real motives behind our own hearts, that we are out for ourselves. And so Judas, his empty religiosity was exposed as he was in the presence of Jesus. And we need to be realistic that if we are walking through life that in, as a church, that there is a reality that some people in our midst will turn out to be Judas in the end. But that should sober us and help us and cause us to be more reflective on ourselves. How do we know if that's the case? Well, having been brought into Jesus' presence, washed by Jesus, served and loved by Jesus. Judas was served and loved by Jesus just as the other disciples were. But as you encounter Jesus, do you feel entitled to have your feet washed by him? Or are you inspired and ready to serve others like him? The second response we see is in Peter, that skepticism turned to zeal. And again, I love Peter in this. We see this in Peter in multiple places in his life and in through the Gospels where, where Peter, he's, he's skeptical of what Jesus is doing. We're about to see it, where Jesus is about to tell him in the passage we see in a couple of weeks. He, Jesus says, hey, um, I've called you to follow me. Where I'm going now, you're not going to follow. Peter's like, I will go to my death with you. And Jesus says, well, you're going to deny me three times by morning. And he does. And so Peter's got this like contrarian side where he's trying to correct Jesus and not and tell Jesus like, well, you're not going to your death. You're not, this isn't going to happen. Like even in the Garden of Gethsemane, like Peter takes a sword and tries to kill the high priest's servant. Jesus has to stop things and heal the guy's ear. And so this is Peter's kind of impetuousness and his skeptical, skepticism as he encounters Jesus where he's, again, his response to Jesus, I can resonate with. He was like, hey, you're not doing this job. Like you don't, you don't need to wash my, I'll wash my own feet before I let you wash my feet. Because you're my teacher, you're my Lord. And as soon as Jesus corrects him, though, he goes 100 degrees, there's 180 degrees, and he goes, okay, then wash all of me. <laughs> and for some of you, this might be where you're at as you've come here tonight. 
Maybe you've got some skepticism, some cynicism that you're, that you're struggling through or thinking through, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Some of you grew up in contexts where, where asking questions was a bad thing because any form of skepticism or cynicism or doubt or fear, was you were told that's, like a, that's an indicator of a lack of faith. You better be careful. You're going to backslide. Or you've interacted with Christians who treat you that way, that, that if you have questions and doubts and, and want to talk, but you're dismissed as a lost cause because you have too many. I want you to hear, Jesus has time for your skepticism. He isn't afraid to be asked your questions. He isn't scared away by our doubts and our fears. In fact, as one commentator said, Jesus is always more ready to meet us at the throne of grace than we are willing to meet him there. And so Peter does what he classically does, but he shows humility in that because he's correctable. When Jesus gives him an answer, he listens to Jesus' words and is willing to correct his life in an instant to be able to follow Jesus more fully. And so it turns to this zeal that he has. And so if you're a skeptic, ask good questions, but do it with an open heart. And for those of you who know what Peter's zeal is like, be open to correction. Keep stoking the fires inside of you and the fire that you feel in your bones, but, but work hard to discern whether you're hearing Jesus' voice and accepting Jesus' correction or whether you're stuck more on your own zeal and excitement. But skepticism can be turned to zeal. And third and finally then tonight, we see John who leans in to closer intimacy with Jesus. And for some of you, Maybe this is where you're at tonight. Or what God's calling you to. Now, I, as I read this, I go like, why didn't John do something? Which probably reveals a little bit more Peter in me. Like, there's a reason Jesus told John, right? If Jesus would have whispered this into Peter's ear, what do you think Peter would have done? I mean, the table's getting flipped. Like, he's restraining Judas and pinning him to the floor. And Jesus would have had to correct him in that moment. He doesn't, there's a reason Jesus didn't tell Peter. But John, again, there's an intimacy here that might even make some of you feel a little uncomfortable because culturally, we like to have our personal space in the West. But John, laying next to Jesus at the table, propped up on an elbow, leans back and just rests his head on Jesus' chest, resting there in his presence. Now, he didn't understand what was happening. That's why he says, like, hey, no one at the table knew why Jesus, why Jesus had said, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. And this is, we thought maybe he was saying, go get more food, or he was get, saying, go give some money to the poor. But Jesus' love isn't contingent on our understanding. We get stuff wrong, too. But he whispered it to John. So if you are gifted in quieter ways that don't get as recognized it might not even feel like gifts to you. It's just loving and living. For some of you, you need to hear that your presence and intimacy with Jesus is a gift to everyone else around you. Your understanding and sense that Jesus really loves you is an example to us. Your tenderness and resting close to him, your consistency in pursuing the presence of God, your persistence in your prayer, it's a gift from God. Keep leaning into, into Jesus. It's something all of us need to do if we're actually called by Jesus and cleansed by Jesus is lean in more closely. But for some of you, you find yourself in more intimacy with Christ more easily. But the closer you rest in him, the more you'll carry his aroma and remind the rest of us what it looks like to be the one that Jesus loves. And so it, as we close up, it, we have all kinds of ideas of what leadership is like and what it's not. And most of our ideas are wrong. 
They're shaped by the world around us and cutthroat survivalism and prideful aspirations more than anything lasting or true. But we need to know that to follow Jesus means we are not above Jesus. What he shows us is upside down, but, but what he shows us is that to lead is to love well and live sacrificially. And so my hope today is that as you heard these nine characteristics, as you saw these presented in God's word, the spirit would move in you to want to lean in closer to Jesus like John did, to, to want to be corrected by Jesus so that you're pointing the right direction like Peter was, to be able to experience the love of Jesus. And my prayer is that your heart is not being hardened like Judas's was. But whatever you walk away with today, you need to hear, and please don't forget, that what do we know about Jesus? That he loves his own to the end. Father, would you, would you, by your spirit, saturate our hearts in the knowledge of the love of Christ? Fill us, Lord. Would you help us to, to, to feel not in a way that we can even describe or a way that we can logic our way through and to get beyond theological categories for some of these terms or the ways that our minds think about them, but in our hearts to feel your love and presence. And would, that, would you use that to soften us? Lord, expose inside of us where our hearts have gotten hard so that you can shave away the callous. Would you expose in our hearts where we're, where we're missing it and getting something wrong and, and call us fully into Christ? And would you give us the freedom to rest in Christ's love, to trust that whatever we walk through now, whatever valleys we go through, whatever pain we experience, that the love of Jesus never leaves that he's shown his love by going to the cross for us in our place and for our sin. And that gives us the hope that he will love us to the end. And so move in our hearts, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.